The Craig Fawley Show on Deadline Detroit is made possible in part by Lynette's Shrimp House, located in Highland Park. It's Metro Detroit's premier destination, serving juicy fried shrimp, fish, and wings, alongside soul food sides and new additions to the menu, like turkey tacos and desserts. Located at 13548 Woodward in Highland Park, just north of the Davison, Lynette's is open for takeaway, noon to 8, Tuesday and Thursday, noon to 10 p.m., Friday and Saturday, and noon to 5 p.m. on Sunday. Call now, get some Lynette's. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Craig Folley Show on Deadline Detroit. Certainly hope you are having a good week. It's been an interesting one so far. And, of course, coming up tomorrow on the program, it is the week that was on Deadline Detroit. We'll be breaking down all the big stories of the week. But I do like to talk to people on this program who are doing important work in the community and organizations. I like to highlight the work that they're doing for people in the community. It's one of the things I really love about this opportunity and this show that I do have. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about a new development that just broke ground in Detroit on Claremont Street in the Woodward Corridor in Detroit. The Ruth Ellis Center broke ground on a $15 million project to bring new housing and a clinic for LGBTQ plus youth in the community. This is permanent supportive housing. We're talking about 43 units, which are, are mostly studio apartments, but it's permanent housing for a very vulnerable population. Here to talk a little bit more about this is Jerry Peterson, who is the executive director at the Ruth Ellis Center. We appreciate that he's here with us today. Jerry, welcome to the program. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Yeah, it's great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And this is big news. Um, But before we get into the actual project itself and what went into it, I mean, let's talk a bit about the need for a facility like this, because this is a population um, that falls victim to homelessness at a much higher rate than just about any other segment of the population. Uh, What's responsible for that? Well, there are two drivers of that. Number one, family rejection, uh, where families really have difficulty dealing with the, the identity of their child and are, and what I want to say about those families is that for most families, they really believe that LGBTQ identities are gonna harm the child and harm the family. So even pushing a child out is generally driven by not understanding the nature of the identity and believing that they are doing the best for their child. They wanna protect their child and, and really trying to change them feels to them like the best way to move forward. Unfortunately, what families don't realize is that we know that that produces much higher rates of suicidality, um, substance use, and and other risky behaviors in, in children. So that's one of the main drivers. Well, and, and you know, obviously, society is still, you know, grasping at straws on how to deal with this in a number of ways. I mean, uh, you know, the Supreme Court ruling not that long ago that, like, conversion therapy and things like this can, can continue. Uh, there's this real reluctance, I guess, uh, to acknowledge uh, that this is a real part of our society and not something that is, that is fictitious or made up or, or imagined in some capacity. And, and I wonder how much that hurts your efforts at trying to get funding for projects like this one and get people to understand the need for a facility like this. Well, to be honest, we are finding a broad base of acceptance, both in terms of funders and in the community. And so we're very fortunate with that. The other th- we do actually have a family engagement division where we are learning a lot about 
about what it takes to, to work with families and to help them, under, help them understand um, where they learned about these identities and, and, and how, why they hold the beliefs that they hold and continuing to work with them to open their minds and hearts in terms of the existence of these identities and how important that is to the mental and physical well-being of their, of their children. And we find that when, when families begin to understand that the well-being of their child is really threatened by some of these actions, um, it softens their hearts and they're more willing to have conversation around you know, how do we work forward together so that they can at least remain in contact with their children? Well, obviously, you know, preventing somebody from being in a situation where they're out on their own, and in many cases at a very young age, uh, is a goal here. But the reality is that you have a situation in which a number of people need assistance. They need housing. They need some sort of medical attention. They need all kinds of things, which this new center is designed to provide. Uh, it's pretty large in scale in terms of the number of units you're going to have here. This is not a small project, uh, and I know it's been many years in the making here, but talk about having a one-stop shop where all of these needs can be met. Well, and, and that's what's really exciting about this project, because young people who are on the street or in precarious housing, either as a result of poverty and or family rejection, um, really need to have an, one place where they can get all of their needs met. This project is based on a how, what's called a housing first model, which basically means that we believe that the more quickly we can help a young person stabilize in housing, that creates the environment and the stability that makes it possible for them to be employed, to, uh, to plan for their future, to meet goals, to address any primary health care issues that they may have, or mental health issues that they want to address. And so once you're able to establish the housing, then if in that same place, in that same building, you can see a primary care physician, you can talk to a therapist, you can participate in support activities, and you can get training in a youth entrepreneurial project. You know, right now we're targeting food service. Uh, the pandemic is kind of <laughs> messing with everyone's plans. Don't know exactly what food service looks like in the future, but still, we're still going, going down that road. But if you can get all those things in one place, um, that's an incredible advantage. And, and we believe we'll be much more successful in engaging young people, helping them set goals and be successful with those goals. And I should remind folks, my guest right now is Jerry Peterson, executive director of the Ruth Ellis Center. They just announced uh, that, well, they've just broken ground on a new facility uh, that is going to create permanent housing uh, for a number of people. It's, it's a very large project. And of course, it is right in the middle of the Woodward Corridor, Jerry. And I, that's an important thing. Location matters here. Um, getting real estate in, in a neighborhood like this is not an easy thing to do. Um, construction in some of these neighborhoods is, is going up. But why was it important to do it where you did over there on Claremont? Well, number one is because that's where we surveyed the young people who might live in a project like this. They've been involved in every step of the planning all along the way. And basically, that part of the city is where they have been living 
for decades. It's where they feel most familiar, most comfortable. And so it is about creating a stable home for them in an area where they are most familiar and feel safe. So that was the number one choice. Then the other aspect of it was working in partnership with the city of Detroit that has been a great partner with us. Um, and they are really the ones who work to identify available properties that might work for the project. It took us a couple of years to do that, but, but this site was named by the city and um, we are through our nonprofit developer partner, Full Circle Communities based in Chicago, um, the, the site was acquired in partnership with the city. So those were the two main drivers of that site. Well, and, and uh, you know, you mentioned the city there. You have had uh, some good partners along the way in getting this project done because, again, getting the funding for something like this is never easy. Uh, but you also have some good partners here in, in Henry Ford that is going to be providing a lot of the medical services, psychological services that you're going to be offering here. Uh, you know, we talk about that willingness. It certainly seems as if people are starting to come around to the idea that this is, you know, something worth working on. Uh, Henry Ford seemed to be pretty enthusiastic about providing some of these services for you. Henry Ford has been a great partner. We already have one uh, integrated health center with them based here in Highland Park and Victor Street. Um, that's for a younger population. It's a pediatric, through the pediatric division and their school and community-based health centers. Um, Henry Ford understands that this is a population that is so isolated and has been so ostracized from healthcare for so long that there's little that they can do to entice young people to come to their existing facilities to get service. And they also understand that there's still a long way to go in preparing their staff in their existing facilities to really welcome and provide knowledgeable services for LGBTQ people in general. And so they have a real commitment to being community-based and going where the people are who really need the service. And I, I have tremendous respect for the entire Henry Ford team that we've been working with. Well, Jerry, I do want to get back to something you were talking about a little bit earlier, and that's this sort of housing first model. Uh, we have been seeing this grow in, in acceptance and, and uh, sort of being the way that people are suggesting we need to go when it comes to dealing with a homeless population in general. Uh, but what I like about this, these are 44 units, I believe you're going to have in there. Uh, the vast majority of them are studio apartments. So you give a certain level of independence but also in a facility where they can gather if they want to and can participate at a certain level if they want to. How important was it to not just have like a room at a, at a hotel somewhere where you don't have that? I mean, it seems that this is a, a more important step. Well, that was part of what was informed by our planning with the young people from the very beginning. We believed that if we could provide a housing environment that would work well for trans women of color who are often the most oppressed and isolated group anywhere in the nation, then we would be providing housing that would work for everyone else. And so there were a number of trans women of color who were involved in the planning of the process. And they live by a network of social relationships and families of choice that are essential to their health. And, and in, pa in the past, often they might get a one or two bedroom apartment and maybe eight people move in and then they get evicted because there are too many people. 
So we were the built space in this project is is designed to create smaller units for individuals to live in, but large gathering spaces on every floor. In fact, there's one very large gathering space on the second floor with glass doors that'll fold back and open up onto an open patio where in the summer, you could have 50, 60 people in for a family event or for a group event. And, um, and that is incredibly important. So housing, but social connection and reducing isolation, those are some of the most critical factors to produce well-being. Well, and housing that, frankly, you know, if you were to plop this in the middle of Midtown, you could probably charge you know, $1,300 a month rent for or right. something like that. I mean, how important is it to make it seem like, hey, look, you are living in a type of place that somebody your age would be living in in any city across America? Well, and it raises self-esteem. It raises expectations where someone wants to set goals where, where they can, in fact, leave. So even though this is permanent supportive housing, and there will be some residents who may age in place over time. Our belief is that with the intensity of supportive services, with case managers and a peer, a peer support that will be living in the building and mental health services and primary care, that young people can set goals where in three to five years, they'll move out of this and move on to market rate housing so that they do have their own full independence and more amenities and, and more space. Um, because we really believe that, that, that this environment is gonna raise expectations and hopes and dreams and that we can help them fulfill their own personal dreams. Yeah, but, but at the same time, the permanence section of this is that there isn't pressure to necessarily do that pre, uh, you know, uh, prematurely. Um, and, you know, and how are you going to gauge when somebody's ready to take that step? Is that a personal thing that they figure out on their own? Or is, that so, is there some sort of guideposts that you have out there to show that somebody's ready? Um, nationally, the work around homelessness has provided really good guideposts about readiness for independent housing. And that will be the guide that will be used for all of the supportive services. There'll be two full-time case managers for 43 residents, uh, which is a pretty intensive uh, access to supportive services. And all of that will be geared toward each individual writing their own plan, their own goals for where they want to go. The case managers will use the guideposts to help them consider what is the next thing that you want to consider? Do you want to work on education? Do you want to work on employment? What's the most important next step for you to meet your goals? Then supportive housing like this, um, other than permanent supportive housing, often ends within 18 to 24 months. Unfortunately, the young people who would be living in this project um, have experienced so much trauma and violence and rejection in their lives that overcoming that trauma and meeting their goals, generally speaking, can't be done in 18 to 24 months. That's why we believe three to five years is a much more reasonable time for young people to, to be able to move forward. It's also important to say, as I think of it, that while we're talking about a specific population, LGBTQ young people 18 to 25, um, and that is our, our target to provide a special place for them to be, um, we certainly are, the. it is permanent supportive housing project funded through MISHTA and low income tax credits. So uh, we're, we certainly are going to be abiding by fair housing laws. So we will not be excluding people who do not 
identify as a part of the com this community, but we will be setting standards so that um, we're creating a community where everyone can feel safe and supportive of one another, regardless of, of the differences that they have in their lives. Well, and I wanted to ask you about that because um, it, it seems to me that you talked about the trauma and rejection that many of these people have faced, and, and some, some of them are dealing with addiction issues and a number of other problems. How important is it for them to be in a place where there are other people that have shared that experience uh, and have some sort of an understanding, maybe not full understanding, but some understanding of what they're dealing with? Because it almost seems as if there's opportunities for mentorship and everything else uh, in a place like this. That's right. And that's what creates safety is building relation, being able to build relationships across differences, both within the project and also the Kresge Foundation, um, in addition to the funding from the McCarter Fund has given us some funds to allow us to actually establish a neighborhood resident council. So there'll be folks from the two to three block radius around the building who live in the neighborhood that we're gonna be inviting in and working with them to build relationships, not only within the building, but with the surrounding neighborhood because safety is really built on familiarity and on the ability to really be able to get to know one another as individuals. That's what takes our fear away. That, that's what removes many of the barriers to, to personal and community safety. Uh, so that's an important part of the project. Well, just a, a few more questions for you, Jerry. And, and uh, you know, one, obviously this is an important step, this facility, uh, again, 40 plus units that are going to be a part of this. What's the need though? Um, how many facilities like this would you like to see? And, and what do you think we would actually need to, to really put a dent uh, in some of these issues? Well, it, part, part of the issue is we don't have data. We don't know for sure. We know that in general, young people 18 to 25, um, generally speaking, around 40%. So two out of five people at any given time who are experiencing homelessness identify as LGBTQ. Um, the other thing is that this project will probably attract people who are uh, in homeless situations around the state, maybe even in the region, who might show up in Detroit and come here and go through the process with the, um, the CAM, which is the Continuum of Care for Homelessness, it's a one-stop shop that does all the assessment for people experiencing homelessness. So it's in, once we open this project, we're gonna get much more of a sense of the demand, and then I'll have a much better answer to your question about two years from now. <laughs> well, understood, but uh, okay, so let's talk about this. When is this, when do you hope to have this open? When are you gonna be doing the ribbon cutting on this? We hope to open by January of 2022. That's, so that's a pretty ambitious it, timeline. It, it is, <laughs> it is. That's the intended timeline, and we'll have to see what, what COVID and any other cause may cause delays, but uh, yes, it is an aggressive timeline. The project is really, really needed. People have been waiting for this for years. Uh, we, the very first conversation around this happened in 2015. So it will open about seven years after that first conversation. So, uh, it's, but it's really great at least to have the tangible site of work going on and we know that it's actually gonna happen. Uh, well, given the uh, amazing work that the Ruth Ellis Center has been doing since its founding uh, to see it expand in this way and sort of really uh, 
increase the offerings and and the help that you can offer is it's really great to see uh, in our community. And and hopefully we'll have a situation where we don't need facilities like this uh, forever. But that is ultimately the goal. That's the goal. And uh, but again, we we appreciate the work that you do in the community. And I know that there are a lot of people who are much better off uh, as a result. Jerry Peterson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Jerry Peterson, Executive Director of the Ruth Ellis Center. Uh, really cool project that is taking place there. I appreciate the fact that they were able to come on to tell us a little bit more about it. All right, uh, quick reminder. Um, you can always get in touch with me if you've got ideas or comments or thoughts about anything you hear or ideas about who we should be talking to. Send me an email, thecraigfollyshow at gmail.com. Again, that's thecraigfollyshow at gmail.com. Not hard to find me on social media either. Look for me on Twitter, on basically on Facebook, on LinkedIn. Any of those seem to work. I don't spend a ton of time on Instagram or Snapchat, but I am on both of those. So if you need to get in touch with me that way, that works too. Uh, Messenger seems to be something a lot of you like to use as well. So it's fine. Anyway, you want to get in touch with me, I'm all about that. Uh, really excited for tomorrow's program, uh, the week that was our regular Friday broadcast. Don't forget, that starts at 1130 live on Facebook Live on my page and on the Craig Folly Shows page on Facebook. Uh, you can also find it at Deadline Detroit's YouTube page, broadcasting live there, if I'm not mistaken. And of course, it'll be on uh, YouTube, or excuse me, it'll be on Deadline Detroit on Saturday, and I'll have the podcast version up uh, tomorrow afternoon. But good guests this week to talk about all the news of the week. Of course, Alan Langle and Nancy Derringer from Deadline Detroit will be here as always, but we'll also have uh, Saeed Khan, of course, who is a lecturer at Wayne State University and uh, an expert in all things in the Middle East, and we've got a situation that is developing there now, so he's going to give us some valuable insight, and I'm really excited to welcome Candace Fortman to the program from Outlier Media. She's going to be a first-timer on the show, and uh, she should be a great guest, so really looking forward to having her input And uh, if you've got some ideas on people you think should be on the show, let me know. I'd love to hear from you about some panelists that we could get. Uh, And and be reasonable. I mean, it's it's not that easy for me to get Barack Obama. I'll try, but uh, good luck with that one. Anyway, have a great weekend. Or weekend. It's not the weekend yet. It's only Thursday. But either way, you know what I'm saying. Have a good day. Enjoy the sunshine today. And let's talk tomorrow. It's going to be a great show. And we will see you then. The Craig Folly Show is made possible in part by Deadline Detroit. Deadline Detroit has some of the best journalists in the city. We're asking you to support independent local journalism by joining our $3 a month membership. By joining, you become eligible to win prizes, including tickets for sporting events and gift cards to some of Detroit's best restaurants. Just go to our website and click the ad at the top or go to www.deadlinedetroit.com membership.